electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, yet another volatile day for markets as tech gives back those gains. NASDAQ's now down more than 2% and continuing to fall. Why one strategist says it's time to get bullish as others warn a recession could still be ahead. Plus, a lot more on Musk's big capitulation and what that means for the man, Twitter, and the banks this hour. And finally, your valuation is wrong. That's Moffitt's take on the software names this week. Got the analysts behind that call later on in the hour, John. Yeah, but Carl, before we get to the markets and tech's pretty big fall today, not as big as its rise over the last couple of days, let's start with Elon Musk and Twitter. Musk agreeing to buy the company for that original offer price of 54.20 a share just days before his scheduled trial. He is scheduled to give a deposition tomorrow. This comes after a drawn out legal battle that has been giving the world a glimpse of his texts, particularly over the weekend. Uh, Twitter stock soared more than 20% into the close yesterday on this news. But even if the deal goes through, a lot of questions about the business story still remain. How is Elon Musk going to make money in this broader ad slowdown? How is he going to secure financing as banks face the prospect of hefty losses on debt for the deal? And what exactly this means for his brand and for Tesla's brand? D, the highest margin product in Elon Musk's portfolio is the brand of Elon Musk as this sort of wise, cracking, billionaire genius, kind of this generation's Tony Stark. And this Twitter transaction, I think, threatens that. This was just a blunder from start to finish, a bad investment followed by a bad takeover process, followed by a bungled attempt to get out of it. And now the geopolitical tensions that come with Twitter probably threaten his other brands and portfolio. You mentioned Tony Stark. I'm going to go DC Universe and mention uh, Harvey Dent in the Dark Knight. You either die (laughs) I am. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain, right? This is the moment for Elon Musk where he has had so much success, maybe as a brand, as a marketer. Um, He took on the auto industry. He took on NASA. Can he take on social media? You would think this might be an easier task, but many have stumbled before. When it comes to Twitter in particular, Carl, um, his idea to create this sort of super app, is he going to be able to do that again? This has been tried many times with Meta, with PayPal, with Uber even. And it's just not the same sort of landscape as a place like China where that works. Um, But again, there's this belief perhaps And we've seen this through the text messages from billionaires, from investors all across Silicon Valley. There's this belief that they don't even need to see. They don't need to do the due diligence either. They don't need to see the models. You can just believe in the man. And that's, you know, really the question going forward, whether he'll be able to succeed. No one knows. 
Yeah, we just had a long discussion with the former FTC commissioner about how platforms are under pressure to get smaller, not bigger. Uh, it's hard to imagine that somehow this is going to be folded into a banking and consumer and everything app, as Musk says. Although, Stiefel today, John, says the company is about to get, we think, is a lot less attractive, especially when you fold in the uh, incremental security concerns, the staff departures, so that at any rate, I mean, they say utilizing the under technology is going to have to involve a new platform in some fashion. Well, he has spent the past six months taking a sledgehammer to it. I mean, yeah. almost literally. Uh, the, the cyber truck, I think it was, it was the one that they actually <laughs> took a hammer to. But I mean, he's been attacking the credibility, attacking executives and employees, attacking quite a bit. And even his partners now, the potential partners, potential investors, yeah. ended up getting their dirty land laundry aired a little mm -hmm. bit over the weekend. That is one of the challenges that he'll have, I imagine, to sort of clean that up and bring his many friends along now into helping him run this because he's got lots of other stuff he's in charge of. Which brings us back, of course, to the question of financing. There's only so much the Elon Musk brand can do. And we're in a very different market, Carl, than we were back in April when this idea was first floated, pursued, whatever you want to call it. Credit markets have certainly changed a lot. You've seen what's happened with Citrix, and it's likely that the banks would almost certainly have to offer this debt at a steep discount. What does it mean for them? What does it mean for his equity investors as well? We have the text messages, but we don't know where they stand after, as John said, Musk basically took a sledgehammer to the company and its reputation. Yeah, not a surprise and not a coincidence. To Dee's point, the Tesla's down 5% today. That's going to take you back to the middle of July. Uh, let's take a deeper dive into today's declines. Tech may be losing some of the recent rally, but our next guest says there's still reason to be cautiously optimistic watching semis and some of the more richly valued parts of the market. We're also uh, watching the OPEC meeting, of course, happening in Vienna and the production cuts coming out of there. Let's bring in Bespoke Investment Group's co-founder, Paul Hickey. Paul, great to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, hey, Carl, what's going on? Um, so is the, is the take that a couple of 90% up days in a row is actually bullish? Well, so, I mean, I think the 90% the up days in these extreme breath uh, measures that we've been seeing, that's more a function of just the day-to-day -day moves in stocks we're seeing are being driven entirely by macro forces. And there's zero to do with fundamental stock um, characteristics driving market returns. So, these kind of extreme breadth readings, uh, you know, cause very, you know, the activity like we've seen the last several days. But going down beneath the surface, some of the technical indicators that we've been looking at are showing some positive divergences here. So um, for starters, you look at the, we made a new low in the S&P 500 in the tech sector last week, uh, but the percentage of stocks over their 200-day moving averages and the percentage of stocks making new lows, uh, the percentage of stocks making new lows uh, actually was lower than what we saw in June. So fewer stocks were making new lows. And when you see that type of scenario, it's it's the idea that investors aren't throwing the babies out with the bathwater anymore. They're becoming more discerning in their sales. And it, it's not just a um, all or nothing type of mentality, or it's a less of an all or nothing type of mentality. So. Those are, are things to watch. And then we're, yeah, you alluded to it earlier as well with the high multiple stocks. Interest rates have been rising where they were rising up right into quarter end uh, last week. But the stocks, some of the stocks that have the highest multiples are actually outperforming uh, broader market here. If you look at the 
50 stocks in the Russell 1000 with the highest price to sales ratio, their relative strength versus the broader market actually bottomed in late May, early June. And they've been outperforming ever since then in, in a pretty steady fashion. So as the market looks out, you know, six months forward, uh, maybe that's just an indication that investors are looking to, and you were talking about it in the last hour, not necessarily a Fed pivot, but at least a pause. Right. I mentioned semis earlier as well. Uh, is that a function of their, um, their cycle moving so rapidly and the names having been so washed out this year? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, you brought that up as well, and I forgot to mention that. So semis, um, they've been washed out. They're actually one of the only groups in the tech sector that's trading at a, a discount to the S&P 500. So um, the other sectors are still trading at a, at a premium based on their 10-year average. So that's something to think about. And again, what they did last week on a relative basis, semis made a new low, but on a relative basis, their relative strength versus the S&P 500 has yet to take out the lows from... I think for the semis, it was uh, in early July, their relative strength. So, I mean, it's they got close, but they, they didn't quite get there. And so um, as long as that holds something to, you know, as you said, I hate the term cautiously optimistic, but it's a positive divergence uh, that you can, the market is telling you something that maybe the headlines aren't telling us. Paul, what's not running right now? You mentioned that high multiple stocks have actually been doing pretty well, counter to what some people might think. Apple started underperforming over the last few days, but is there a category that you see, particularly in tech, that perhaps isn't uh, getting as much interest as one might assume from the overall movements? Well, so, uh, John, what was some of the areas in tech that were outperforming earlier in the year, the low multiple stocks, those are actually, you know, those have actually started to lag and those have started to fall now as what you tend to see in a bear market, you tend to see everybody start to, you know, everybody gets taken down at one point. So some of these names are starting to um, underperform while they outperform going forward, more lower multiple tech stocks in some cases. Uh, so that's that's an area as far as uh, valuations are concerned. Um, and then when you look um, as far as sector basis, some of the highest multiple s- stocks come from the software sector and they've been holding up a little bit better um, in these last few weeks uh, versus what they were doing late last year while the NASDAQ was still rallying and then earlier this year in the early stages of the declines. Uh, Paul, stick with us. We're going to continue this conversation, but I do want to bring in Crossmark Global Investment CIO Bob Dole, who's predicting a higher chance that we'll see a recession next year. Uh, Bob, what do you make of this conversation? If we're heading into a recession next year, do you think that Again, this is just sort of a relief rally. We've got further lows to reach. Yeah, I think we're uh, going to have lower lows, but th- this rally, as Paul's pointed out, has a lot of signs uh, that are better than many of the other rallies. Um, mm-hmm. So um, uh, probably further to go. Obviously not today. It was too much too soon. Uh, but we're, we're uh, reiterating some of the uh, names that lag so much earlier are beginning to do a bit better. So getting a little more... Uh, cyclical, higher beta in the portfolio is what we're up to, uh, especially on the weekdays, thinking that we're in a bottoming process. So, Bob, if we're going to see lower lows, what causes that? I mean, if you think that the Fed is basically at least more than halfway there on rates, maybe a few more, but then a pause, um, why wouldn't this be a good time to buy? Or is it? Is Is there a risk that something breaks here in the meantime? 
Well, as I said, we are, we are adding, believing that uh, you know at, at the 36,3700 level, it, it pays to, uh, to to put some more um, emphasis in the portfolio. But what could get us uh, lower lows? Uh, you know, we need some patience here. The Fed's not done. Uh, we, we may see an end to it at some point in time, but uh, last I checked, um, the earnings yield and the uh, um, uh, inflation rate are the wrong relationship for a bear market bottom. Uh, we've never seen a bottom until the earnings yield and inflation go, go in the other direction. So I think there's more to go. And the Fed may be successful in what they've done in supply chain, chain improvement to get inflation down to the 4 to 5% level, but they keep talking about two. If they're serious about two, there's a long way to go. Bob, we, we talk a lot about what central banks are doing, what the Fed's doing, what government uh, policy is doing, but I'm fascinated and somewhat concerned by what we see OPEC doing this morning, which to me seems to be actually working against what some other uh, governments around the world are trying to do uh, in, in the face of this shaky economy. The, the, these moves to subsidize energy are in fact perhaps going to subsidize OPEC uh, country profits instead. How do you factor in policy that might get diluted by sort of geopolitical economic cross currents? Yeah, you know, with great difficulty. Your point's a good one. That is the commodity complex to include oil, as you know, from the high not that many months ago, has come down a lot. Oil down 25%, uh, for example. And now you've got OPEC saying, hey, we want to firm this up a little bit. We care about our revenues. And so uh, they're operating um, uh, with their own interests in the short term in, in mind. Of course, here in the U.S., we could turn the spigots on too, uh, but we've chosen not to do that. So uh, this is going to create a little more tightness in, in the price of oil as we're witnessing even today. So, Paul, when it comes to technology, I wonder what you think about um, the, the characteristics, maybe even as you look at the charts, of companies that are able to differentiate enough that these macro you know, headwinds don't matter as much. When will we be able to identify who's able to battle through this? Yeah, so I mean, I think just look at what the stocks are saying and, and you look at, um, you know, to the point earlier, you want to look for stocks. You know, we're seeing smaller number of stocks making new lows uh, last week in the tech sector as we did in June. So you want to go start looking at some of those stocks that um, haven't made new lows in the real large cap space. You have, you know, Apple had underperformed a little bit, but it hasn't taken out those lows from earlier in the year. Um, Amazon hasn't taken out its low from earlier in the year. And then on the high multiple space, you have a stock like Cloudflare or Snowflake, which were, have some of the highest multiples. But um, those stocks have actually held up relative, have held up very well compared to the market uh, since June. So, I mean, I think those are names to look at, whether the, the market and investors are, are focusing on those names, um, even as they, even as the, the, the macro backdrop tends, starts to look worse. You look at a name like Amazon, go back to the dot-com bust, that stock bottomed in 2001, whereas the broader market didn't bottom until uh, late 02. So, um, you know, the market, even in a, in a rough environment, has a way of, of discerning um, winners from losers. 
Hey, Bob, you know, looking forward to, uh, to Jobs Friday, I mean, obviously the market's sort of primed, uh, you could argue, to rally on a weak number. But even if the number's in line, I wonder if you think uh, enough of the market has sort of absorbed the idea that, you know, we're going to be working on this, we're going to be chopping this wood for a while and might not necessarily be bearish on Friday. Uh, Carl, I think if the number comes in as expected, the market's uh, not going to like it a whole lot. The market's in the mood for some weakness. Uh, we always saw this saw it with a jolts number, and I think it wants the same thing uh, with a number on Friday. So uh, uh, good news, uh, and that would be a full um, uh, report, I think would be interpreted as bad news. The, the market wants to see more economic weakness, so the pressure uh, on the Fed uh, lessens somewhat. Finally, Paul, um, you know, we're so focused on the macro here on jolts, on non-farm payrolls, inflation data. But of course, we have an earnings season that is about to kick off. And I wonder if you think that investors um, have maybe become a little bit complacent. Are they going to be able to look past the quarter? Is it going to be worse than expected? What are you looking for from guidance and how much do you think that impact will be on the broader markets? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big question going forward. Uh, you know, what we have seen so far is, um, you know, analysts have been lowering expectations. The, um, the pace of negative revisions in the tech sector has uh, picked up over the last week. It's not at historical extremes by any stretch, but analysts are lowering their numbers. Um, on the other side of the equation, we haven't seen a whole lot of pre-announcements to the downside from companies. So, uh, you know, that would be something that normally would make you optimistic, but I, I wouldn't put too much faith in that at this point because we've seen a lot of companies in recent earnings reports come out of left field and lower guidance um, or come up with just a real bomb of a report without giving any pre-announcements. So uh, it's nice that we haven't seen these warnings so far coming into earnings season or we haven't seen a, a large uptick, but uh, it's you know that's just something we have to continue to watch uh, going into earnings season. and. Um, That'll right. be the, you know, the big question. What do companies say about the outlook going forward? Yeah, good point. You can't hang your hat on it. Uh, Paul Hickey, Bob Dahl, thank you very much for being with us today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Still to come, Moffitt Nathanson arguing your valuation is wrong, at least when it comes to software. Find out why next. Tech Check is just getting started. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. 
Let's get a check on Uber. Two stories here suggesting that perhaps tight labor supply could be easing. First, according to an interview with the FT, global driver supply is now up 70 percent year over year. And they say that there is no driver shortage anymore. The company also announcing a new return to work guidelines requiring employees to be in the office two days a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, beginning November 1st. Uber drivers and corporate employees, guys, they are back in the cars. They're back in the office. The other side of this, though, when we look at Uber, we always got to look at Lyft. I texted them this morning to see um, if they were still finding the same driver supply issues. No answer back. This is now a company that is worth less than $5 billion, Lyft, that is. And the divergence between the two, Uber and Lyft, is certainly increasing, John, um, over the last few months. They've held up pretty well, but of course, they're coming from much lower bases. They have not even come close in a long time to those IPO prices. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of good news. But I think in the macro sense, it's also kind of a yellow light because the reason why driver supply is improving is, you know, the drivers need the money now. That, that savings rate has been yeah. coming down. People got big credit card bills to pay as we're coming into Q4. So that raises questions also about demand and how much discretionary income there's going to be. We will see if people are taking Ubers to the mall. Now turning to software, your valuation is wrong. That's at least according to Moffat Nathanson, which argues prices could fall as much as 20% for some names as valuations come down across the board. Here to break down the call, Moffat Nathanson's Sterling Audi, who also points to Asana and Zscaler as bright spots in September. Sterling, um, you, you're not saying, though, to stay away from uh, getting into positions in software entirely. How do you read the market right now? Yeah, we think uh, your last guest put it right. We're going through a bottoming process and we think we wanna be averaging into software even though there could still be potential downside in the near term as volatility continues. But what we've seen through the years is that, you know, software does tend to turn before all the fundamentals have actually turned. As investors realize that it's a durable space, it's one that has some of the best growth across the economy, and that reflects in the stock price performance a little bit earlier. How richly valued do you find this category of young companies with good models, perhaps distinctive technology, but no profits? Yeah, so during real bear markets, the companies that tend to be newer, smaller, premium valuations, uh, and losing money take it on the chin and, and they fall. You know, again, as Laskas pointed out, you, know, you take a look at a Cloudflare or a Snowflake that has high relative valuations. You know, they took it on the chin, but now we're starting to see that really hold in because that growth really matters as valuations stabilize. If you're not going to get a lot of multiple expansion, then it's going to be growth that ends up driving a lot of the share performance. And that drives some of our positive outlooks on companies like Cloudflare and Datadog. Adi, um, we spent a good amount of time. I'm happy to be talking about this subject, um, at looking at valuations in light of stock-based compensation and RSUs and debt on the balance sheet. Um, but what happens now? Do you expect companies start to use more cash for compensation? Would that be a good trend? Would that eat into their free cash flow and thus, you know, maybe hinder their ability to go on the offensive or innovate in a time like now? Yeah, we're starting to see a mix in terms of what software companies are doing. Some are starting to ratchet up cash compensation as a competitive weapon to, you know, neutralize attrition. Others are doing, let's say, special 
grants in terms of RSUs and more stock-based compensation, even though the the stock that those employees have worth a lot less than where they were back in November. So I think it's a combination. Ultimately, what we see through these cycles is as the market stabilizes and the IPO market starts to pick back up where there's the opportunity for employees to move to the next private company that may be the next big thing. Those are the ones that uh, drive a lot of the stock-based compensation. So by no means do we think RSUs, which is the primary vehicle for stock-based compensation, is going to go away. In fact, I think it's still going to be an important instrument for you know attracting and retaining some of the best talent, especially around sales and developers. Hey, Sterling, it is a fascinating uh, list, and I'm looking where the variance between uh, Bloomberg and the calculated EVs the smallest, and it's usually in a lot of these larger names, Adobe, Microsoft. Is it a function of size? Yeah, it really is. You find that on a relative basis that the stock-based compensation as a percentage of revenue, the size of the grants really stands out in some of your smaller companies. As you get to that larger size, you tend to find a balance. Also, you take a company like Adobe. Adobe's done a very good job neutralizing stock-based compensation through buying back stock. And this is where the big argument comes in. Should stock-based compensation, which is a bigger vehicle in software versus a lot of other industries, should we look at it as a cash expense or not? Our view is you really get a better reflection in valuing a company looking at the share impact, at the dilution, in the enterprise value, the fully diluted share count, because looking at it as a cash expense doesn't seem to make sense. That number gets locked in at the time the grant is given, and it doesn't change whether the stock doubles or whether the stock gets cut in half. So I think your larger companies have kind of normalized. They're doing a better job on the buybacks, and that's why you have the differential in large versus small. It's an important take for investors to consider uh, now that we're looking at that kind of thing again. Sterling Audi from Moffitt Nathanson. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come this morning, he loves me, he loves me not, and now he's signing a deal. We're going to break down what Musk and Twitter means for Tesla, certainly for the banks, maybe the law firms and the man himself, after a break. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at tmobile.com/now. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford checking in on things about half past the hour here. Another day of outsized breadth, although this time to the downside. NASDAQ falling big for another day off the session lows, but only a handful. In fact, four stocks in the green on the NDX as of now. Let's get a news update with our Seema Modi. Hey, Seema. Hi, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. OPEC plus nations have agreed to cut oil production quotas by two million barrels per day. CNBC is reporting that will translate into actual production cuts of about one million barrels per day. Crude prices are near the highs of the day, building on sharp gains in anticipation of those cuts. 
Let's talk housing. Mortgage apps sinking another 14% in the latest week, pushing them to the lowest level since 1997. Soaring interest rates and Hurricane Ian combined to throttle mortgage demand. That's the concern there. Growth in the services sector is stronger than expected. ISM's non-manufacturing index topping estimates in September. The report also shows prices paid by businesses for inputs fell to a 20-month low. And Alec Baldwin and producers of the movie Rust have settled with the family of slain cinematographer Helena Hutchins. Hutchins was fatally shot on set with a gun held by Baldwin during filming last year. Details on the settlement have not been released, but any agreement would not stop prosecutors from bringing criminal charges. Production of the film is expected to resume in January. Carl, back to you. Seema, thanks so much. We've been talking about Twitter, uh, Twitter for most of the morning. Elon Musk making headlines after news. He's reviving the deal to buy Twitter. How is he planning to pay for it, though? Uh, Robert Frank has more on that this morning. Hey, Robert. Good morning, Kyle. This is going to be expensive and not just for Elon Musk. Remember, he committed to provide $33 billion in equity for this deal. The question is whether he's raised enough cash already or whether he has to sell more Tesla shares. This year, he sold $15.4 billion of Tesla stock, first back in April when he tweeted no further sales planned after today, and then again in August. He's getting $7 billion in VC investments from Larry Ellison, Mark Andreessen in Saudi Arabia, and he has the $4 billion stake in Twitter that he already owns. Assuming that that stake is included, he now has about $27 billion of the $33 he needs. That leaves about $6 billion unfunded. A UBS report says he may have to pay taxes on the August stock sale, and he may have $4 billion left over from last year's sale. You add all that together, depending on how you count all that, UBS says he may need to raise between $6 and $10 billion. Wedbush saying he may need to raise $3 billion or more. Another challenge is the bank debt Morgan Stanley and others have committed to loans of $12.5 billion. Some of that they're going to have to resell to investors. You've got credit markets tightening. They could end up losing hundreds of millions of dollars on those loans and need to offer interest rates of 15% or more just to get people interested. Also, guys, you look at Tesla today. It has lost over $60 billion in market cap since noon yesterday yeah. when we learned of this deal being back on the table. So Tesla losing about a Twitter and a half in market value just since yesterday. Ouch. That puts it, that puts it in perspective, Robert, a Twitter and a half. Um, back to that bank debt, though. So they basically signed this deal in April. We talked about this earlier when the credit markets looked a lot differently since then. We've had Citrix. The bank took a big loss on that. Would there have been, is there any reason to think that maybe there was some kind of timeline or expiration when these kinds of deals are signed? Because obviously this has taken so much longer than maybe originally thought. Are there any provisions in there? Or is it pretty much a done deal that the banks, when they try to resell this debt, are going to have to eat that loss? Well, there, there was an expiration. Unfortunately, that expiration is all the way April 2023. So they're within that expiration there is very little wiggle room for the banks to get out of this. And that's why they're just going to have to price it to get rid of most of it mm -hmm. at, at what is likely to be a big loss just to get it done. And already this was sort of a stretch for them. But Elon is such an attractive investment banking client that at the time it was unattractive. But they figured, look, he's a great client. This will be worth it over the long term. Now I think they're second guessing whether they should have gone ahead at all. Robert, how much does this potentially 
damage that, um, that allure of, hey, we, like, we want to be involved in what this uh, billionaire genius does, so we're going to take a flyer on this. When the market shifts, as it seems to be continuing to do, does that uh, require a different sort of risk calculation for these banks? It certainly does. And you can bet that all these banks, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, Barclays, all these will want some payment from him in the future. They're going to come to him over and over, whether it's Tesla raising cash, whether it's SpaceX going public eventually. They're going to want to be at the front of the line for whatever Elon Musk does going forward. I have no, no doubt they probably will. The question is, will they make back what they lost in this deal? Robert, thanks for that. Uh, we got a lot more on the Musk story in a moment. We are getting some breaking news, though, this morning coming out of OPEC. Uh, in the meantime, a fairly strongly worded segment fr statement from the White House. Our Kayla Tausche has that. Hey, Kayla. Hey, Carl. The Biden administration has combed through the details of that OPEC communique and releasing a statement suggesting it is not pleased. A joint statement from the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and NEC Director Brian Deese had very strong words for OPEC and some marching orders for the administration going forward. In part, the statement said the president is disappointed by the short-sighted decision by OPEC Plus to cut production quotas while the global economy is dealing with the continued negative impact of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. At a time when maintaining a global supply of energy is of paramount importance, this decision will have the most negative impact on lower and middle income countries that are already reeling from elevated energy prices. Now, the statement goes on to say that the administration will be looking to Congress to find additional ways to lower energy prices as well as reduce the country's dependence on OPEC, which it has returned to calling a cartel, and also suggesting uh, that it is uh, paramount to continue to reduce reliance on fossil fuel, uh, which the administration uses to tout the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the investments that that makes in uh, climate change and electric uh, investments, electric vehicle and chargers and the like. Uh, but certainly it is safe to say, Carl, that after a pressure campaign in the 11th hour, this is the direction that the administration did not want to see energy markets go, especially five weeks before the midterm election. Yeah. And after gas prices had been coming down, I, I know you'll continue to track that for us. Kayla Tausche, thank you. Turning back now to Elon Musk and his expanding universe, our next guest says his Twitter purchase greatly amplifies his ability to market his companies and himself, uh, advising not to bet against the billionaire's brand. Here to discuss, Wharton School of Business professor Americus Reed. Americus, welcome. Uh, unpack this for me because it seems like Elon Musk still has the same Twitter account he had before, even if he owns it, but he has a lot more troubles. You say no? Well, I think that it's a great question, uh, and it's an important point, John, because what's going on here is that people don't often realize that the brand building exercise requires a lot of money, and it requires control of the messaging mechanisms that allow you to actually put your positioning out there and to communicate with people that might be interested in what you have to offer. And so from my perspective, this is simply the idea that you have the power to, first of all, have this direct sort of messaging platform into 100 million people, which has been obviously the only way that Tesla has uh, communicated any sort of advertising. There's no advertising, it's all word of mouth. And so the power of this platform just in that domain is super important. But think about now the notion of 
being able to control that platform in various ways that might allow you to more creatively articulate your not only your own messaging, but what goes on in terms of the entire ecosystem of the messaging platform itself. So in my view, it's super smart because number one, he likes the platform anyway, and he's on it a lot. He has a lot of power, and this is how he messages and talks directly to his fans. And this is a way to continue to have that control to be able to tightly uh, be able to shape the perception of not only the markets, but how individual consumers and other clients uh, that might want to do business with Elon perceive him and his brand. I hear that, Americus, but this also raises that adage for me, why buy the cow when you can have the milk for free? He was already the uh, probably the most prolific major tweeter on the platform for free, and now he's got the exposure of being among that group that gets called before Congress, that's getting you know wrangled by the EU about various platform decisions and its impact on geopolitics. Um, does that propose? Does that present some risks as well? Yeah, it's a great question, John. I think 100% there's risk, but there's always risk with Elon, right? So the the idea that yeah, you don't want to necessarily pay for the cow, but if you can do something really creative with the cow that can give you more than just the milk, then that makes sense. And so from that perspective, we always know that Elon is very much in these conversations of geopolitical sorts of analyses and other kinds of world events, foreign policy events, but that's part of his brand. And being able to have sort of control of his platform and to invest it in signal to people that not only is it an important sort of aspect, but I have creative ideas that I might figure out how to leverage the platform to integrate within the context of the communication uh, initiatives across all my companies is something that we have not seen yet. And it's in his mind. That's the thing. We don't see what he's thinking with respect to these things because they seem really willy nilly. They seem sort of go, no go, but there's absolutely a strategic chess sort of playing strategy that's going on here. And I think Elon is really working on four, five, six, seven steps down the line. What am I going to be able to do with this platform once I have control over the brand itself, but also integrating it into the various aspects of my own businesses? And, and being in a period where there's pressure on platforms to shrink, not grow. And, and number two, what about instances where he does speak his mind, as he did on Ukraine this week, and gets basically owned by half the Western world? Well, but this is the beautiful thing about it, Carl. I think that getting owned is part of the brand. So what he's trying to do here is essentially say, listen, I can be provide. That's that's what he, he his whole persona is innovation, provocative, unpredictability. And it seems sort of random. But it's, there's, a, there's a there's a sort of behind all this chaos. There's a sort of strategy behind it. And so, yes, he steps in it from time to time. But that actually is a signal to the marketplace of his authenticity. And so having these sort of little bumps and in, in sort of places in the road where things go a little bit sideways, that's part of the mystique. That's part of the mm -hmm. that's part of the connection to people <laughs> that say, like, you know, I'm kind of like that. I'm a little bit weird and quirky and all of these kinds of things. And so that creates this connection that suddenly makes you feel like I believe I have a relationship with this man and therefore I'm going to follow him and his vision throughout the future. Yeah, and, and there are plenty of those, Americas. I, I, I understand your argument. He thinks differently. We don't know what the plan is yet. And if he explained Tesla or SpaceX before they existed, many people may not have bought that vision. But Twitter feels very different. I mean, <laughs> he pursued it, kind of, and then he tried to shake it off, and then he didn't. Like, this feels very different than Tesla and SpaceX. 
he didn't really have a plan. Is there anything that leads you to believe that there is a strategy here? Yeah, I think that the strategy is that it's a little bit of sort of covering the losses in the sense of, well, listen, I was going to do this anyway, and I'm going to have to pay out some money irrespective of this if I'm going down this lawsuit sort of mechanism. So why not buy it and actually own this thing that I adore so much? Uh, so there's a bit of that going on there as well. But I think the, the overall strategy is really the power of the word of mouth marketing and how that can be integrated across the platform. Because to me, this whole idea that to create a car company from scratch and say, I'm going to take on an entire industry and I'm never going to buy an ad. I'm just going to create all of these passionate, loyal fans from speaking about admiration for what it is that I am as a futurist and trying to see the world 200 years from now. And so my perspective with, with Elon Musk is, I, you know, I may or may not be a fan, but I don't want to bet against the guy because the guy has this visionary sort of aspect that says he will go and try to do things and he won't be, always be successful, but he has in his mind some kind of chess strategy that he thinks will play out in his favor. All right. Well, Carl Icahn just made a lot of money betting against Elon Musk getting out of this deal. So we'll see. America's Reed, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Meantime, digital ad players, one part of the market missing out on the rebound. Why one firm says there's more pain to come and what that means for Musk and Twitter. That's next. Musk's Twitter deal raising some questions about the digital ad model. Barclays out with a note today saying names are finally heading towards the trough, but aren't quite at a bottom yet. They forecast more deceleration ahead. And they say that while buy-side expectations appear to be very low for flagship names like Google and Meta, they could still miss this quarter. The firm points to Snap as the only name where they could see numbers revised up from depressed levels. But shares, remember, they're down more than 70% in six months. So a long way to go. And of course, Snap has revised down a number of times, John. Um, Q4 is going to be very important. The blockbuster holiday Shopping season, um, what effect is that going to have and demand on that advertising model? Yeah, and it's interesting if the other names are bottoming, what does that mean also for Twitter? Where, I mean, Elon Musk, if he ends up with this, as it looks now like he will, is going to need some talent. Might want to get rid of some talent, but he's going to need even better talent. And, you know, valuation-wise, how do you do that? How do you pay when you don't really have a stock that's uh, that's going to trade yeah. anytime soon. And does he have enough money left over to pay for them? Right? Well, you can't use your stock. Yeah. He, he's had a good track record in getting people to give him money. We'll see. Still to come, a deep dive on crypto's money laundering problem. Next, we're back in a moment. Get a gut check on Taiwan Semi today. Morgan Stanley names the stock a top pick. The firm predicting a semi-cycle recovery in the coming year. Company also made headlines this morning amid reports it's been negotiating some better equipment prices with suppliers, which could give the manufacturer a boost on the bottom line. Stocks up a percent today in a pretty tough tape as the Dow now trying to defend 30K, just one point below, and the two-year back to 417. Back in a moment. Well, crypto advocates have been fighting falling prices. Some are pointing to an even bigger obstacle ahead of mainstream adoption, and that is billions in fraud. Kate Rooney joins us with more fraud. has been an issue for as long as crypto existed. Where yeah. does it stand now? Yeah, it has not gotten much better, Dee. It's, it's still a pretty big issue here. Crime is still weighing on the crypto industry as it tries to become more widely accepted and legitimate. Data firm Elliptic has some new research on the scale of this. Since the start of 2020, there's been roughly $4 billion dollars 
in illicit crypto transfers. Theft is still by far the biggest moneymaker for criminals. Tornado Cash Service coming in at number two. It was recently sanctioned by OFAC, followed by dark web services, North Korean heist scams, and then Ponzi schemes. Elliptic calls out three of the newer blockchain technologies as the big culprits here. You may have heard of decentralized exchanges, decentralized finance. They also call it DeFi. These don't have intermediaries by design. That sector, though, saw about $1.2 billion in hacks. It was about a third of all of the crypto stolen. Another billion or so came from coin swap services. Those let users transfer crypto within or across different blockchains without opening an account. And as Elliptic put it, these cater almost exclusively to a criminal audience. And then bridges, as the name suggests, they act as a bridge for swapping assets across some of those different blockchains, which aren't always compatible. And while cryptocurrency transactions are anonymous, they are actually uh, usually traceable. And that has helped law enforcement. In some cases, the Colonial Pipeline is the big example, but criminals are taking advantage of money moving across those different assets and blockchains. They call this chain hopping. Elliptic says there's growing risk from sanctioned and terrorist entities taking advantage of that. And the Treasury Department is paying attention. They called out chain hopping by name in that FSOC report this week and say some of the large-scale attacks are one way that crypto could threaten U.S. financial stability. It's like whack-a-mole. Yeah. You figure one form out and then another one pops up. Kate exactly. Rooney, thanks so much for the look at that. Up next, a chilly sign for Amazon. We will be right back. One more thing before we go, and that's Amazon joining a group of tech names responding to the chilly macro picture. Amazon freezing corporate hiring in its retail business for the rest of the year, according to the New York Times. The retail segment had more than 10,000 jobs posted as of Monday night. That said, the freeze reportedly doesn't cover Amazon's cloud business. And for a company that manages more than a million employees, this is a drop in the bucket when it comes to cutting back the, the workforce in warehouse is a lot bigger and has higher churn historically, though in this macro environment that could change. Yeah, it's a drop in the bucket. But remember that Amazon, after their huge hiring spree of the last few years, Carl has become the number two private employer in the country. So it could be an interesting signal for what the Fed wants to achieve for markets. We'll see. Of course, the other big tech companies that don't have as many employees have um, announced that they'll slow or temporarily pause hiring altogether. Yeah, so many uh, tentacles in the American economy. You could argue that uh, Amazon is macro at this point. Yeah. Uh, guys, still down 300 today. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.